Hey everyone, it's good to be with you. Well, sort of, I guess. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Randy, and uh, I serve on the preaching team here at Restoration. Uh, my day job is as a Bible teacher at a local private school, so typically the only times I find time to preach are going to be Christmas time and, and summer. Um, but we regularly meet as a preaching team to talk through theology and the teachings that we're going through. Um, and that's been a really helpful process, especially for me as we've gone into Ecclesiastes. My undergraduate degree is in Christian ministry. And my, my master's degree is in theology and church history. Um, and so while I've been exposed to Ecclesiastes before, I've never really taken an in-depth look. So it's been really fun to meet with Dan and with Ryan um, to just kind of work through and talk through um, what this all means. And the thing I like about Ecclesiastes is the tension, right? Even when the author wraps things up at the end, he doesn't really wrap anything up. There's, there's, there's enigma, there's paradox. Um, and when it comes to scripture, I love that stuff. Uh, but I recognize that I might be rare, and that might not be where you're at today, uh, loving that tension. Um, so hopefully what I can do is provide a framework of how to look at this specific passage um, that'll help bring a little bit more kind of formation to you. See, I, I do prefer teaching in a prescriptive way where you know we can look at a clean passage um, and take some really good things out of it and, and, and move on. But Ecclesiastes is written more of a stream of consciousness, right? It's descriptive. Uh, so it can be challenging for us to really understand um, everything that's going on. Uh, but when we look at what the author is talking about, and he's talking about this teacher, right, and this teacher's life, we see a little bit of how this teacher has tried to live with God and how he's tried to live without God and what that's kind of done for him. And it just gives us overall some suggestions for how we can take a look inside at ourselves and outside at our lives and really evaluate what's going on. So hopefully I can give you a framework for that um, to make it a little bit more concrete for you today. More than anything, um, Ecclesiastes needs to be studied in groups, right? Process with somebody who's close to you. Um, I encourage you to go beyond like your small group meetings and find somebody um, that knows you well to talk about the things that we're going to talk about today um, and allow them to speak into your life, even if you, you end up disagreeing in the end, right? Even if it's hard to hear, um, because I think sometimes having the conversation is more important than the actual outcome. And that's what I think Ecclesiastes gets at for us. So we're going to be taking a look at chapter 5, verse 8, through chapter 6, verse 9. And now, I'm not going to read the passage today because as I was practicing and reading it out loud, it just doesn't read well. Um, it's so back and forth and all over the place. It's really hard to catch the themes that uh, the author is talking about. So I encourage you to read that on your own. Um, but so, uh, on your own time, because um, it is important to see the context of it all. I'll do my best to kind of give us an overview of context, and then I want to zero in specifically um, on uh, a couple specific verses that happen in the middle of our passage. So again, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting in um, verse 8, and then all the way through uh, chapter 6, verse 9. So towards the end, so what the author does is, is, is he kind of starts and ends with an indictment on the wealthy, uh, right? In typical of Ecclesiastes, he's talking about the idea that it's, you know, chasing after wealth is just vanity. It's worthless. It's like trying to grasp the wind. Um, it, it's really meaningless. Um, and the, the author is telling us that the teacher actually did this, right? He had wealth. Um, in the end, the teacher found that it was completely meaningless, a, ch a chasing after the wind. 
Um, but here in, in this passage, he gets a little bit more kind of heavy handed with talking about why like it's, it's kind of worthless to chase after wealth. And so he ends um, starting in verse seven of chapter six by saying, everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. What advantage have the wise over the fools? What do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So he says that the pursuit of money, the pursuit of advancement um, in society and in our careers is completely meaningless because it will never actually satisfy. But is it better to be poor? He doesn't really answer the question, um, but what he does say is what's the best thing to do is to look at what's right in front of you rather than having an appetite that, that, that searches for something further and searches for, for a grasp. Rather, look at what's right in front of you instead of what's further ahead. Because in the end, um, death is the great equalizer. Um, what's interesting is, is the name Abel from the story of Cain and Abel um, actually has the same Hebrew meaning as the word hevel that we've been talking about, this emptiness, meaningless, worthless. Um, it's vapor, it's wind, it's breath, it's momentary, right? And Abel's name actually literally represents his place in scripture. Because if you remember, he was there and he offered a sacrifice that by the way was pleasing to God. God accepted his sacrifice as something pleasing. Cain got jealous and then boom, he's gone. Uh, he, he's gone as soon as he came on, started as soon as he started. So the word Abel, his very name actually means just that momentary blip. So even though Abel um, sacrificed was pleasing to God, like he, he died anyways, right? And that's the great equalizer. No matter if we're poor or rich um, or if we're wise or foolish, death comes to us all in the end. Um, and so the, the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to tell us like your life is very temporary. So focus on what's right in front of you rather than what could be in the future. And it's really important that when we're reading um, scripture in general, but especially a passage like Ecclesiastes, that goes back and forth and back and forth, that we pay attention to when the author changes how they say something, right? So he's just, the author goes through, you know, meaningless, 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 and he ends with meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. But in the middle, he changes his language and he says, ah, but this is good. And in uh, chapter five, verse 18 through 20, he says this, this is what I have observed to be good. That it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him. For this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. So if you break apart this passage, this kind of new way of speaking, um, you notice that twice the author mentions the word lot. Um, he says, eat, drink, and be satisfied with your toilsome. Okay, so he's not completely ab absent of cynicism here, but your toilsome labor. This is your lot. Okay, so eat, drink, and be satisfied because you, you just got to work. Um, and then two, accept your lot and be happy with what God has given you. Now, when I think of lot, I typically think of um, kind of a negative um, connotation to it, like resignation. Um, my first experience was on this computer game where um, there's literally, the character was a bump on a log and he, in this monotone voice said, well, this is just my lot in life, All right? So a lot in life has always had a negative connotation to me um, in, in the sense where like it reminds me of Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. 
but that's not what lot means here, right? Acceptance is not the same as resignation. Acceptance is more like recognition of the position that you're in and how you can work with God best, right? And this is really clear in the story of Esther, right? If you want to do some homework this week, uh, read the story of Esther, or at the very least, watch the Bible Project's video on Esther because it's a fantastic book um, whose, whose main kind of like, like uh, turning point in the story has a lot to tell us today. Uh, for our purpose today, I'm just going to briefly summarize the position that Esther finds herself in. So Esther is a Jew um, who is married to the ruler of Persia, who's not a Jew. And this ruler has declared that all Jews are going to die, but he doesn't know that Esther, his beloved wife, is a Jew and will be killed as well. Now, Esther can't just go into the king and say, hey, like you have this plan to kill all the Jews, which means you're going to kill me. Because if Esther approaches the king without being invited, she'll be killed. <laughs> so she's in this weird position where if she tries to tell the king to save her people and herself, she could be killed. And if she doesn't say anything, then she surely will be killed. Um, and so her uncle Mordecai um, comes to her and says this in Esther 4.14, For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. So first off, notice Mordecai's faith, right? He basically says to Esther, um, Esther, even if you don't do anything, God will still save us. Well, he doesn't say God because God isn't mentioned in Esther. Um, but that's one of the cool things about the book is God is clearly seen, even though God is not mentioned. Um, but maybe a better translation for us today of what Mordecai is saying is God doesn't actually need you because God will accomplish God's own purpose without you. But wouldn't you rather be a part of it? Then Mordecai invites her to consider that perhaps her position has actually been placed there by God, implied, for such a time as this. Or in our teacher's term, in Ecclesiastes, perhaps this is your lot in life. All right, so lot, um, eat, drink, and be satisfied with your toilsome labor. This is just your lot. This is just your life. And accept your lot and be happy with what God has given you. And so this is where we arrive at our point of, of contemplation, right? The enigmatic life is meaningless, but go live your life um, has to be really ruminated on and applied to each of our specific lots or specific situations in life. Right, again, not in resignation of like giving up and becoming complacent, um, but recognition of what God is already doing with or without you. So in order to give us this framework to process um, with what acceptance could look like, I wanna start by unpacking what it doesn't look like. Um, in one of the books that we've been reading to prepare for this series, the author talks about five ways that we kind of shirk our responsibilities or, or the things of our lots in life that God has for us. Um, so I'm going to walk through these five and I just want you to ask the question, is that me? Is that the way that I kind of avoid my lot in life and what God um, could be doing? Uh, and then I want you to at some point after the sermon, have a conversation about those five things with that person that you're close to um, and see if they agree with which, which one of the five you think you apply on. Uh, but be careful, that might sting a little bit because um, it may not be what you think. You see, we're often blind to our own struggles. 
right? We often, uh, so if I'm going through this and you're like, yeah, I hate when people do that, right? It's a good indication that that might be part of your problem uh, because we often react most strong to the things that we haven't dealt with within ourselves. And this is why it's important to talk um, with other people who, who we trust to have these hard conversations. Um, because in the end, this isn't an exhaustive list uh, by any means. You could uh, have a couple of them that you struggle with. You could have a whole different one that you struggle with. So have a conversation about this um, and buckle up because it might get a little bumpy. Um, especially if you're watching this with somebody um, because in this description, you may notice that they look over you for a second. Um, that might be a good indication that I'm talking about something that you struggle with. So good luck with that. So the five ways we try to escape our lot, um, I'll go over each one of them um, individually and then explain them a little more, but they are nihilism, cynicism, hedonism, pietism, and Christian escapism with Christian in quotation marks. You'll see why. So nihilism, right? This is the original thought about lot in life, right? It's a bump on a log. It's Eeyore's uh, gloomy place, rather boggy and sad, where he builds his house only to have it knocked down again, right? It's the explanation that God is dead and therefore meaning is dead as well. Uh, Martin Luther, the reformer in the 16th century, um, once said that if he knew that he was going to die tomorrow, then today he would still plant his apple tree. Well, the nihilist um, would rather collapse in a ball um, weeping next to the tree because it'd be meaningless to plant or perhaps mock others for their lack of understanding um, that everything is meaningless. The end of the world is nigh. Now, to be fair, nihilism isn't always a choice. Um, there may be some of you that suffer from depression and anxiety um, may find yourself in a place of nihilism regardless of your own desire. Um, and, and there's plenty of circumstances that have come upon us that cause us to make that meaning, um, that cause us to develop bad habits that are unhealthy. And it's hard work to come out of these. Um, and it's hard work to do it on our own, especially if there's trauma involved or other chemical issues. So, so please don't hear me just trivializing this idea of nihilism as, as a choice if that's not where you're at. Um, and if that's where you find yourself and you don't want to be there, then I do encourage you to get help for that. So nihilism, okay, choosing to think that everything is meaningless. Second is cynicism. Um, my spiritual gift is sarcasm. Um, actually, Ben Ewing's love language is sarcasm. Um, so in this, you may not completely give over to despair, uh, but you definitely look at everybody else who's striving um, and you make sure to make a comment about it. Right? You see the irrelevance of people um, putting on this appearance, this facade of working hard for something, um, and you see right past it. Right? After all, meaning is really fiction because it's completely made up by the person who's telling themselves that story. Uh, there's pretension in this one, right? a sense where there's little hope chasing after the wind, so you might as well just lay down and enjoy a cool breeze on a hot day um, while you look at all the other losers out there working tirelessly for nothing. Hedonism is our third one. Um, I don't think I ever understood this word until I did this study, right? It's one of those things where like people talk about hedonism and they use the word, um, but I was too embarrassed to like admit that I didn't know what it meant. So I just never said anything. Um, I should have just Googled it. Um, but hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure, right? It always desires the next best thing, right? If I only had this, then I would be happy. Right? Hunger needs to be filled, and yet your appetite is always for something more. 
right? Um, the, the teacher actually has, has a first indictment in, in the beginning of our passage where he talks about systemic injustice and how the powers that are in place um, to, to, to help prevent injustice are actually just using people and kind of standing on the necks of people in order to, um, to gain what they want out of it. Right? And that's where injustice comes from, especially in a systemic way, is when people are using other people um, for their own pleasure. Okay, And this can happen um, even unbeknownst to us at times. Um, so the, the whole idea here is individualism, right? Or me first. Um, and, and if I wasn't being recorded, um, I would probably take some time to talk about this whole American individualism and this whole family first model where like our nuclear immediate family is, is, is all we really care about and, and forget about everyone else, even though the Old Testament constantly talks about taking care of the poor and the widowed and the orphan and the stranger, which is often translated foreigner. Um, and yet we ignore them and push them to the margins so that we can take care of our family first. Um, but that's a different sermon or maybe a, a conversation all together. Um, because what I really want us to think about when it comes to hedonism is our choices. And the question we need to ask for ourselves is, do my decisions negatively impact someone else? Do they keep someone down? Am I contributing to the yoke of oppression that Jesus so vehemently opposes? Because if I'm doing that for just myself, my pleasure, and my family, um, hedonism may be the problem um, that we have. Um, then there's pietism. Um, pietism is my dream weakness, right? I wish that um, my weakness was retreating into my little prayer closet to be alone with God um, and never really engaging with the people who are from God, by the way, um, again. Right? So this person who, who is a pietist pays no attention to the planting of the tree or even really eating um, because they're concerned with eternal matters um, and where they're at with God. But the problem is that cloistering ourselves off from the people of God is neglecting the very aspect of eternity that we're looking forward to. Right? This is just Christian hedonism. Right? It's, it's taking your own personal needs and desires to be just you and God and forsaking the rest of the community that God has called you to be a part of. Right? It's placing yourself above everyone else. I mean, yes, Jesus got up before daylight um, and he went to a solitary place and he prayed. And then he came back and he healed people and he had conversations with people and he fed people and he challenged the way that people are living their lives. So for those that struggle with pietism, of retreating amongst yourselves, you are robbing the rest of the community of God um, from the gifts that you have for that community. Um, and I, and I kind of rail against this one a little more because I recognize that desire in my own life, right? Um, kind of this 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 stay-at-home order has been um, like great for me in the sense that um, I've really enjoyed being alone, but it's been bad for me because I've been alone with my own thoughts. And I don't have many people to challenge my way of thinking. Um, and so I just agree with myself. I'm very comfortable with, with, with what I think in my mind. Um, but we need people to push us, right? I've needed Ryan and Dan to push me um, in my thoughts. Because the problem is, is that when I'm the only voice that I'm listening to, uh, it's, it's, it's a dangerous thing. Right? It's a dangerous thing for me to pretend that it can be just us and God um, and because then we get to decide what God is telling us, right? And if we don't test that, 
Um, how do we know that we're not just making it up on our own? So the story I'm telling myself may feel real, but in actuality, it may not be true. Even when that story comes from a time of prayer. And that's why it's important to not escape into pietism. Uh, the last one um, is Christian escapism. This is my favorite one to talk about with my students. Um, I teach apologetics or how to defend the faith um, from reason um, because the reality is when you look at Christianity, specifically in the area of the existence of God, um, you actually don't need a lot of faith to believe in the existence of God because it just makes sense. Um, but one of the things I have to train out of, of my students is what we call schlock apologetics um, or bumper sticker Christianity. All right, so I asked my students, what are some of the bumper sticker phrases that you, uh, that you see on cars or you hear people say? And we talk about the bumper sticker slogans um, of like, in case of rapture, vehicle will be unmanned. Um, or my boss is a Jewish carpenter. Or God spoke and bang, it happened. Um, Honk if you love Jesus, text if you want to see him. And we have some fun like with all these kind of joking around about these, these, these bumper stickers, but at some point every semester, it turns more serious. And three big themes from scripture come up um, as frustrations for the students I work with. Um, they get frustrated when they hear somebody say that God uses evil from good, which comes from Genesis 50, 20. God's got a plan, Jeremiah 29, 11. And God works everything for good, Romans 8, 28. Uh, now I've kind of railed on these before in the past and uh, shout out to Evelyn McHugh for kind of refining my thinking um, on some of these. Um, you see, for some people, these verses are, are sources of deep encouragement. Um, they're mile markers in their faith, um, and I have no issue with that. My issue becomes when they're used to avoid conversations, right? When my students bring these up, uh, they don't do so in a joking way, but in a place of pain, right? They say, when I'm struggling with something and someone says one of these things to me, it's not that I don't believe that it's true. It's that I feel like they don't want to talk to me. So when we use these pithy Christian phrases in conversations with each other, we put up a barrier that says, I don't want to enter into your pain. And that's not the empathy that Ryan talked about recently. Now the problem uh, is that with this one is that both parties are actually at fault here when it comes to community, right? The person saying the phrase may actually believe that phrase because they have a story in their life that relates. And the person that hears the phrase makes a meaning about their pain that it isn't worth um, talking about with somebody. So one of the parties needs to push forward and ask a follow-up question. Either the person saying the phrase needs to say, can I tell you why I believe that's true? Or the person that hears the phrase needs to ask, how do you know that that's true? In my life, when I've asked people, how do you know that's true? When they say one of these pithy phrases, I am amazed at the depth um, and the empathy of their story that they tell me. So we have to ask that. We can't allow people to escape um, and we can't use that to escape ourselves. So which are you? Okay. Um, and yes, these are, I've presented extremes, right? They don't fit nicely into a nice little box. You won't either. Um, neither does Ecclesiastes, by the way. Um, because like I said, even when he resolves or wraps things up at the end, he doesn't resolve everything. Um, so do you suffer from nihilism where you fail to see meaning in anything? Or is your struggle cynicism where your constant critiques keep you from even trying? Or hedonism where you care more about yourself or your family than anyone else who may be in need? Or pietism, where your desire to retreat, to be with just you and God, um, leaves the rest of the people of God 
on the outside? Or do you escape intentionally or unintentionally um, with pithy Christian phrases when you fail to ask how do you know that that's true or fail to tell somebody how do you know that that's true? So this is your lot in life, right? Your lot in life is your lot in life. Um, que sera, sera, it is what it is, hakuna matata, right? This is just where we find ourselves. But your lot is a gift from God. <clears throat> so you have to choose between squandering that gift by staying in that pattern that keeps you distant from others or accepting your lot and join with what God is already doing with or without you. So I want to close with sharing with you how um, this makes sense in my life um, and, and offer you kind of a little motto um, to help you with it. You see, when I left church ministry, I did so with the intention of, of pursuing a career as a professor, right? Going on, finishing my master's degree, getting a PhD, teaching at a college. I was in a master's program that would culminate with a thesis paper and eventually um, a dissertation for my PhD. I was researching, writing feverishly, um, getting up way early, um, going to the coffee shop and writing before it even opened, um, before I started my shift. Um, and then also once I started working at the school, um, going in early to the coffee shop to write before. But the one thing that I was lacking in my resume to take this next step was the uh, teaching aspect and so I started subbing and then eventually got a full-time job as a middle school boys bible teacher uh, I figured I'd be there for a year or two while I finished my master's and then enrolled in PhD programs and I talked to my advisors to see what I needed to do I was going to take a year of pretty intense study and writing to get to this point um, and meanwhile I'm teaching this boys bible this boys bible class um, and really enjoying it to the point where one of my advisors said to me why wouldn't you just stay if you really enjoy what you're doing, why wouldn't you just stay? Because the, real, the reality of it is I had four or more years of really intense work, of high debt that would be hard to pay back with the job that I would get, um, and I don't know if I would enjoy it or not. So I decided to stay a middle school boys Bible teacher with no real plans or aspirations to move up. Um, eventually, um, I did move up to the high school, um, but that was more because uh, I was able to follow those students who I'd worked with for the last three years for another four years. But basically, I said no to these dreams and aspirations of this prestigious career as a professor and instead stayed at a local uh, Christian school teaching Bible to middle school um, and now high school students. I became very content with having a position that is lower than my aspirations. Um, in fact, if there is some kind of specific calling in my life, um, then I think this is probably it because I gladly accepted this lot and joined in what God was already doing with or without me. Um, and now I get to be a part of what God is doing in these young people's lives, helping them stay with the faith even after they graduate. So when we read scripture, we can get discouraged because it's always calling us to more. And we never actually get to arrive to a place where we really do look like Jesus um, or where we are as good as we wish that we were. So instead, I think we need to accept the little things of our lot in life. We need to know that the little things aren't enough, but they aren't nothing. That's my motto. It's not enough, but it's not nothing. Right? My wife asks me, hey, you know, do you feel rested from your nap? Well, it's not enough, uh, but it's not nothing. Right? Or, um, hey, did you enjoy um, social distancing with your friends or Zoom calling with your friends? Well, no, it's not enough, but it's also not nothing. Um, it's still helping me move 
forward. And as I answer the, this way in the little things in life, that it's, it's not enough, but it's not nothing, I can do so later on when the harder things happen. When I give up aspirations of prestigious careers, I can say, well, what I'm doing may not be enough, but it's not nothing. I am still having an impact. So rather than focusing on the next big thing um, or walling off in nihilistic cynicism, I hope we can work on accepting our lot in life as a gift from God and realize that while it may still not be enough, right, we still have to work hard toiling with the wind and it will never be enough. It's also not nothing. Let me pray for you all. God, thanks for our time together uh, and just the study of your word. God, may we all just reflect on what it is you've given us in this life, what our lot is, what you have for us, what you're already doing. And Lord, may we recognize your presence um, and may we see how we can fit in um, to what you're already doing. Pray these things in your name. Amen.